This afternoon, I'd like to introduce you to four people. They've all been newsworthy. They've had articles written about them in the press. They've been interviewed on TV. But they're not household names. They do, however, represent a massive change in what is happening right before our eyes. The first of our personalities is named Libby. Shortly after a centuries-old law was changed, this energetic woman with a shock of short brown hair and a ready smile was announced as the very first woman to ever hold her job. She received congratulations directly from the Prime Minister of England, and her appointment was at the very top of every newscast. The next person is Megan. Prior to the recent election that catapulted Megan to celebrity status, Megan was profiled in Cosmo and appeared on a Netflix show. Megan has since been given an award by the Dalai Lama and declared as a soldier of social change by the city where Megan lives. Thirdly, we have, with glasses and silver hair, 62-year-old Greta. She lives in Toronto. She's an accomplished speaker and a writer. She heads a group that meets each week and sparked enough debate that she became the subject of a huge New York Times article after a famous legal struggle. And finally, we have Jean. Born into poverty, he became an advisor to a president and a hero of civil rights activists. I just gave you a little bit of information about those four, but there's a little bit more information. You see, each one of these individuals was newsworthy and troubling in their news. You see, Libby, Libby was the first ordained priest in 1994. She smashed the Church of England's stained glass ceiling when she was named the first female bishop after being approved by the queen and lauded as a historic moment of progress for the church. Megan, well, Megan is an evangelical Lutheran priest who prefers they, them pronouns and was just last month elected as the first openly transgender bishop in an American major Christian denomination. Greta, well, Greta is an openly atheistic pastor who does not believe Jesus Christ was God nor does she ever use a Bible or refer to God in any of her sermons in the services that she only calls weekly gatherings rather than church. And finally, we have Jean. Jean was a self-admitted alcoholic who said he always wanted to be a June bride. So he left his wife for a same-sex civil union. He was celebrated as the first openly gay bishop in the United States in the U.S. Episcopal Church before becoming selected in a very highly symbolic move to deliver the prayer for then-president-elect Barack Obama in an inauguration event. Libby, Megan, Jean, Greta, all of them are, are, are ordained into the clergy. But whether they're a female bishop, openly gay, or a transgender 
a transsexual uh, bishop, or even an atheist pastor. They all represent a radical change in mainline, traditional, nominal Christianity. We live in a period of time in the United States, and in fact the entire Western world, of extreme religious confusion and apathy. According to polls, we see a dramatic rise in those that are considered the nuns, meaning those that reply none of the above when they actually answer what or are asked, what is their faith? Well, this afternoon, we're going to survey a bit of the rapidly evolving religious landscape here in our nation and look more closely at a group that God holds particularly responsible for this lethargy, this ignorance, and this chaos. We're going to see from God's own dramatic words that the problem today with modern-day descendants of Israel is eerily familiar. It's scarily reminiscent of what ancient Israel faced and led to a fierce godly anger and the calamitous downfall of a nation. Today we're going to look at the shepherds of Israel. Not the young boys on the hillsides guiding the lambs, but the spiritual shepherds the nation's religious leaders, and the priesthood, the men who should have shown discernment and bravery, but instead led the people of Israel astray. Hopefully we'll gain a fuller appreciation of what this means from history, but also for us today and into the future. Now, various polling shows not just the drop in church attendance, but that nominal or traditional Christianity is literally falling off the cliff. It's cratering. While 7 in 10 Americans still claim to actually be Christian, when the Barna Group actually took a little deeper dive into the information, and they found when they asked a series of questions whether people agree with certain doctrines, they looked at their attendance, they actually found that even those people that, are, that consider themselves Christian or label themselves as Christian, most would be deemed as what's called post-Christian or even highly post-Christian, because they don't actually believe with what is taught. In other words, they've really moved away from the Christian faith. More than half of millennials, actually 53%, now agree with the statement, the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. So the majority of people believe that it's not even literally true. Pew Research in 2008, and obviously that goes back away, so it's probably far different now, showed that 52% of Americans, or 52% of Christians in America, should be more specific, believe that non-Christian faiths like Islam or Buddhism can lead to salvation. Completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. Another Pew Research poll showed that only a slim majority of Christians feel that abortion is a sin in any way, just barely. So much for the good news. In Europe, the numbers are even far worse. Only 39% of Western Europeans say religion gives any meaning to their lives. Only a quarter of people believe in the God of the Bible, and just one in ten pray regularly. It's been estimated that only 3% of the British population attends church weekly. 
and only 1% of those that are under 25 years of age. And the numbers are reflected also when we go to the religious authorities. Sweden's Lutheran Church, known today more as being kind of an association for humanist values, last year became the world's first major religion to actually have a majority female priesthood. 41% of Australians don't trust religious leaders at all. Not that they have a little less trust, they don't trust them at all. That's according to a 2019 Australia Talks National Survey, and it's even worse amongst younger Australians. And a survey from back in 2006 found that back in, that one in six Protestant priests in Holland were atheist or agnostic. That's their job, but they don't believe or understand or know that there's a God. And in typical fashion, Canadians apparently said, hold my beer, let me take care of this one. And according to the Canada's public broadcasting network, they've estimated that at least 50% of the clergy in the United Church of Canada don't believe in a supernatural God. It's like a car mechanic not believing in cars. 50%. Well, if we get back to the United States, there's a book that came out a few years ago called Bad Religion. It's uh, written by Ross Duthat. He's a New York Times columnist, and he had some interesting quotes that he was able to write that I thought I'd share with you. He said, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. Since the 1960s, the institutions that sustained Orthodox Christian belief, Catholic and Protestant alike, have entered a state of near-terminal decline. The churches with the strongest connection to the Christian past have lost members, money, and authority. The elite that was once at least sympathetic to Christian ideas has become hostile or indifferent. And the culture as a whole has turned its back on many of the faith's precepts and demands. We see that. We would agree with that. He also observes that religion has become a license for egotism and selfishness, easily employed to justify what used to be considered deadly sins. The result is a society where pride becomes healthy self-esteem. Vanity becomes self-improvement. Adultery becomes following your heart. Greed and gluttony become living the American dream. When he addressed where this started, he addressed a lot of the religious climate of the 1960s and the 1970s. And he said, and he noticed, and he spoke with other religious you know, historians and experts, and they came up to the answer. They said, the more the accommodationists emptied Christianity of anything that might offend the sensibilities of a changing country, the more they lost any sense of what they were engaged in really mattered or was even really true. They tried to compromise, 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 and at the end they kind of go, we don't even know what this is all about. Amid such sweeping changes to their faith, there were two obvious paths that Christian churches could take, accommodation or resistance. 
and the churches chose accommodation. But how did the culture of the United States become so anti-Christian? Though we realize that this country never fully followed the narrow path set out by Jesus Christ, there was at least an attempt by the majority of the population to adhere to many Bible-centered beliefs. How did a nation built upon Judeo-Christian values go this far in the opposite direction? It seems odd to realize now that the Declaration of Independence was signed by over 29 members of the clergy. Can you imagine ministers signing a government document these days? People would be up in arms. They'd go crazy. Imagine the national motto that we had, in God we trust. Can you imagine that going through Congress today? Until a few decades ago, the education of children in America was strongly connected to the Christian faith. And in fact, the Bible was often used as a textbook. Often that was the only book people had in their homes. They learned it. They learned it inside and out. Many of our presidents, Abraham Lincoln comes to mind. That was a book they read all the time. Dr. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, wrote, The only foundation for a useful education in a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue, and without virtue, there can be no liberty. Hard to imagine a congressional leader saying something like that today. Bold and fearless spokesman for the independence, the clergy played a big role in the Revolutionary War as well. It was to the point that the British despised the clergy that America had. They actually had a term for them. They called them the Black Robe Regiment in reference to the garb that these men, ministers wore while preaching. Later, the French historian Alexis de Tocqueville said, Upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. Religion is America, and it must be regarded as the foremost political institution of that country. I do not know, continues de Tocqueville, whether all Americans have a sincere faith in their religion, for who can search the human heart? But I am certain that they hold it to be indispensable to the maintenance of Republican institutions. This opinion is not peculiar to a class of citizens or a party, but it belongs to the whole nation and to every rank of society. There is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. He continues, I sought for the key to the greatness and the genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields, in her boundless forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce, in her public school system and institutions of learning. I sought for it in her democratic Congress and in her matchless constitution. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. De Tocqueville sensed something about America. Americans had an interest in a devotion to religion. Not full, not complete, certainly, but many of them tried as best as they understood. And it didn't just stop with the leaders. Our education system is that way as well, or was. Great institutions like Harvard, the first college in the United States, had the early motto of Harvard. It was actually truth for Christ in the church. 
That was the motto for Harvard. Now it's just been changed to truth. But Harvard went further. They actually said, everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of the language and logic and in practical and spiritual truths, seeing that the word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. Psalm 119.130. That was part of the student handbook at Harvard that all students were expected to pray twice a day and be able to be ready to give an answer. The third college in America was Yale, started by 10 ministers who donated books to form a library. And the charter clearly states that the purpose of the school was to, well, they say, wherein youth may be instructed in the arts and science, who through the blessing of the Almighty God may be fitted to public employment both in church and the civil state. And the college rules there for Yale said, all scholars are required to live a religious and blameless life according to the rules of God's word. That would be rare to see in any university in this day and age. Another colonial college today, it's the Ivy League Columbia University, but then it was known as King's College, had the motto, in thy light shall we see the light. And it had an unusual admissions criteria in that all prospective students had to be able to translate the Gospels from Greek to English. That's how proficient they wanted students to be in the Bible. So what happened? Well, let's look at ancient Israel and see how they fell away from God, despite the knowledge of and the blessings from Abraham's obedience. Now, many Bible prophecies have a dual application. Their initial fulfillment was in the days of the prophets, yet their ultimate fulfillment will be at the end of the age, just prior to Jesus Christ's return. And we know that God holds the entire nation responsible for rejecting his way, but he held, and he holds today, a specific group even more responsible, the priesthood and the religious leaders. So let's look at what God says to the shepherds of Israel. We're going to be going through a number of different verses here, so get your pages ready to turn, get your fingers ready to get that iPad and flipped over these. So why did and why does God hold the priesthood, the religious leaders, responsible? First point, they twisted God's word into a different gospel. They twisted God's word into a different gospel. Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 2, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was born into the priesthood and called to be a prophet at a very early age. From the time of Josiah until the fall of the kingdom, he preached prophetic warning in and around the area of Jerusalem where he was born. He preaches unwelcome message to the religious and civic leaders for 23 years, it said, before the end, beginning of the end of the nation. And then it was too late. In Jeremiah 2, verse 8, it says, The priest did not say, Where's the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things they, that do not profit. Right there, he's, God is saying, look, we've got a problem with the civic leaders, but where are the religious leaders? If we go to Jeremiah 5, verse 12, 
It says, they have lied about the Lord and said, it's not he. Neither will evil come upon us, nor will we see sword or famine. We had false prophets there saying, don't worry about it. Come on. That's going to happen here. God will take care of it. It's good. They were false prophets. They didn't want to be bringing bad news. They wanted to be be able to give the good news, the happy stuff. In verse 13 of Jeremiah 5 says, And the prophets became wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. What they said was gone. It didn't matter. It was empty. Skipping down to verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? People liked hearing their messages. Now, Jeremiah 23. You may want to keep a finger in Jeremiah 23, because we'll kind of come back here a number of times. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 contains a particularly scathing denunciation of the religious shepherds uh, of the people of Israel. Verse 13, And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people to err. They caused the problems. They caused them to err. Also, I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. These are the people that were supposed to be setting the example, and they're setting the wrong example. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and are inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood, and I'll make them drink the water of gall for from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness have gone, has gone out into the land. Profaneness, something opposite of God's way, is what's coming from these prophets. Exact opposite. Now, preachers today, like Jeremiah's time, also preach what they, people want to hear. They avoid controversy. They stroke, they smooth, and they pacify people in the pews. Over the past decade, 15 years, You've seen a lot of what people are now referring to as gimmick-based evangelism, introduced by what is big news. When you go to some of the religious bookstores, you you see a lot of information on how to build a church, and you'll see terms of the consumer-driven church or being a seeker-sensitive church. Basically means preaching what the people want. They want to make it consumable and easy to digest. They want to keep church positive and a fun place to go. Pews have been replaced with theater-style seating. Starbucks coffee bars have added. Sermons have been shortened. Bible readings eliminated. Ministers wear skinny jeans and tattoos peek out of untucked shirts. Worship music, well, there's very little difference between worship music and the music that when you turn on the radio. Moving away from commonly accepted Judeo-Christian values, they've substituted alternative progressive ideologies. They've shied away from challenging words like repent to more tolerable, more positive, and easy to digest notions of success or inclusivity. Inclusivity. The Bible's no longer considered the word of God and something to be taken as an authoritative work in a person's life. Preachers today have downgraded the Bible to the story of God or a narrative of man's writings about God. 
Jesus Christ has been reduced from being the Son of God to an activist fighting for what one author called a new trinity, the trinity of diversity, acceptance, and social justice. The former bishop of Liverpool put it quite candidly. We have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen. We seem not to have a single bone, who seem to not have a single bone in their body of divinity. They are so afraid of extreme views that they have no views at all. We have jellyfish clergymen, and now we have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached every year. Sermons without an edge, or a point, or a corner. Smooth as a billiard ball, awakening no sinner and edifying no saint. They think of it as a mark of cleverness and intellect to have no decided opinions about anything in religion and to be utterly unable to make up their minds as to what is the Christian truth. Billiard ball sermons, smooth, mean nothing. Jellyfish preachers, jellyfish sermons. I always think there was a football player for the San Francisco 49ers a number of years ago, and a defensive player, he'd make an interception, and I hated it when he did it against the Cowboys, but he had this thing where he would just jump up, and he, his whole body moved. It looked like he was breaking his neck. Now, Merton Hanks was his name, and I was like, I don't even know how that guy does it. It's like he doesn't have a spine. That's kind of what I think of when I hear this. Preachers without a spine. And as a result, entirely new gospels have now formed. The self-esteem gospel. This distortion, and all these are based on a kernel of truth, but then taken way off from where God wants them to be. This distortion claims believe in yourself. You might have some struggle and issues, but you're resilient. It masquerades as insecurity or negative self-image rather than calling it what it is. Unfortunately for such teachers, belittling sin doesn't make it go away. We know Jesus Christ said, I came not to call the righteous, but to sinners. The expressive individualism gospel. Here's another. This is another cotton candy gospel, one that it tastes sweet, but in the end, there's, there's nothing there. There's no substance. It says, be true to yourself. Follow your heart and live authentically. It runs counter to everything in the gospel where we're told not to trust our hearts in Jeremiah 17. We know that sin enslaves and blinds us to reality, so we can't understand what is authentic and true, according to 2 Corinthians 4. Then there's the optional Jesus gospel. This belief says that Jesus is a way, but not the way. And a person can find their experience of God through any number of different spiritual courses. To say that Jesus Christ is optional goes against every biblical doctrine in the New Testament. And if Christ is only a way to God, then he would be either a lunatic or a liar for the divine claims that he made. It doesn't make sense. His sacrifice wasn't for, for nothing. Then, of course, we've all heard of the prosperity gospel. This one says that God guarantees his follower, followers a happy, healthy life with no troubles. It'll be easy. Just say certain things. Uh, if you give to the preacher or claim some obscure prayer or just stay with the church, you're going to have good times. Money's going to be flowing in. Everything will be great. But the truth on this one is that Jesus Christ suffered, and those who believe in him will suffer too. We see that in Mark 8.34. We know from scriptures that such false doctrines were going to appear, especially at the end time. 2 Peter 2.1 says, False prophets also rose among the people, destructive heresies. And that's what these are. They're destructive heresies. 
Paul warned of false teachers who preach another Jesus, another spirit, or another gospel in 2 Corinthians 11.4. That's what these are. The next reason why God has a, has a problem with these religious leaders is they preach their own opinions, not God's word. Our mainstream media and popular culture easily dismisses Christianity as both racist and bigoted, so traditional doctrines have had to be you know, evolved. They've had to be changed, redefined in order to align with changing cultural norms. In this case, compassion has to be elevated over truth. The common lines of thought these days are Jesus accepts everyone just as they are. No change is needed. Jesus would never get in the way of love between two people. People need to live their own truth. They can all seem just a little too clever. And the Bible claims, though, that woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It says that in Isaiah 5, verse 20. And that's what these people are doing. Jeremiah 23, back there. Here we see the deplorable situation God addresses here through Jeremiah. And it existed in his day, and the message was clearly applicable at that time, but also to our in, this in-time period era that we're living in now. Verse 16, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak in a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 26, How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, there are prophets of deceit of their own heart who try to make people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Verse 30, therefore, therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Verse 36, and the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more, for every man's word will be his oracle. For you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Perverted the words. Malachi 6, the last of the Old Testament prophets speaks of the priests who despise my name. And bring, being afraid to speak God's words, his teaching, or his law is despising his name. And it's often been said that the job of a task of a preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Ironically, it's also noted that if Jesus preached the same message to, that ministers preach today, he would never have been crucified. It's probably true. He would not have been crucified if you've preached the messages that are done today. Most Christians are woefully ignorant of the reasons for their beliefs, and much of the blame can be laid at the feet of the religious leaders. They don't teach much in their messages. As one other religious expert said, the reasons why congregations have been so dead is because they have dead men preaching to them. How can dead men beget living children? Religious leaders have given in to the temptation to dilute the gospel. Sermons have been replaced by TED Talks, and as an author provided what he called a recipe for a trendy modern sermon. You want to know what that is? He said, the recipe is, you start with a great motivational speaking, saying, your past does not affect, define your future. Then you add a few quarts of cheap grace. Don't focus on your sin. Pour in some prosperity gospel. Grab hold of the limitless blessings God is just waiting to give you. 
flavor it with a little bit of trendy pop psychology. It's all about what sparks joy for you. And voila, you end up with a goopy mess of pablum that not even a baby Christian could survive on, according to this writer. Modern Christianity has also been compared to what to the online encyclopedia Wikipedia. Stephen Colbert, the comedian, uses the term wikiality, wikiality, to describe a reality determined by majority vote, noting that any logger can use any user can log on and make a change, and if enough other users agree, then it becomes true. In many ways, that's nominal Christianity today. Observers agree that Trinity Gospels today are based around aspects of socialism, ecology, transsexual, and homosexual acceptance. The Bible is at best far in the background. Politics and religion have been mixed. We see this week, we see uh, different groups. The Southern Baptist group uh, have been meeting, as well as certain uh, Catholic groups, trying to figure out what their future is. Catholics have, Catholic priests have come out and said, because of his beliefs, the President Biden shouldn't be able to receive communion. But how do you say something against the President in the United States? That's a problem. So they're trying to figure out their way forward. Southern Baptists are now feeling that their, their whole religion now is being limited to just the South and just uh, Caucasians. So they're trying to figure out how do we spread our religion. But they're not looking to God. They're looking to politics and they're looking to people to please people to grow their numbers. Unfortunately, Matthew 15, 14, as Christ said, they are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a ditch. 1 Corinthians 14, 8 says, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? There's a spiritual battle out there, but no one's blown the trumpet. That's the job of a religious leader, a priest, a prophet. But they're not doing it. Many are silent, sitting on the fence, or sending out unclear calls. There is no trumpet call. Shame on them. Next, they're afraid to address sin and the consequences of sin. They're afraid to address sin and the consequences of sin. The Apostle Paul not only confronted sin, but named specific sins when he preached. And that's hardly ever done this day and age. Preachers feel uncomfortable about confronting sin. They won't preach about materialism because they might offend rich people in the audience. They can't preach about fornication because there's people in the churches living together. Homosexuality, well, that's out because that's considered hateful. They've proved ineffective against combating virtually any point of moral contention. In fact, quite frankly, the word sin is out entirely. It's just too negative. As the polls show, people want a positive message. No truth. It's just your truth or my truth, kind of like a version of an Oprah Winfrey interview. It's an empty message from spineless leaders, carnal men-pleasing shepherds who want to rock, never want to rock the boat and will never speak out on things that matter. According to Barna Research, poll in 2020, half of clergy, half of clergy reported feeling limited in their ability to speak out on moral issues because people will take offense. So half of them feel limited to speak out because people will take offense. But U.S. pastors, according to the same poll, ranked watered-down gospel teachings as the biggest issue facing Christianity. 
it doesn't make sense. It's watered down, but they're afraid to preach. There's a bit of a story here that kind of fits what is being preached today. It's called the Mush God. See if this doesn't sound like the God that is being preached in many churches today or known by neighbors around or the people driving up and down the street. The Mush God. The Mush God has been known to appear all over the world on Sunday mornings to a great many people wanting to relax and read the Sunday paper and have a nice hot cup of coffee. He's always there to soothe you and to put your mind at rest, always ready to tell you you deserve the rest today because you've worked so hard during the week. He is also eager to tell you that that really important game on TV or to remind you about all the things you need to do around the house on Sunday morning. During the week, the mush god, he appears all over the place. He appears with politicians at ribbon-cutting ceremonies and to clergymen speaking at the start of the various government legislative proceedings. In fact, the mush god is the god that politicians always seem to turn to. The mush god just adores politicians. The mush god is also the father of the innocuous and the harmless prayer. Most people just love to hear the mush god speak. You could easily get him to give an opening prayer at the start of a hooker's convention, and he would gladly promise that no one would be at all offended. The mush god is very proud that his beliefs and doctrines are completely non-irritating and non-offensive. The mush god loves to interact with other people, and he especially loves to show up whenever spiritual questions are being debated. He just loves to talk about his views on tolerance. The mush god has no theology to speak of. He is a pure cream of wheat type of divinity. Here is finally a God that doesn't believe in strictness and rigidity. His laws seem to be made out of rubber because they bend so much. You can take any of his laws and mold them in a much more useful manner. People just love this mush God because he is so very easy to get along with. What a convenient God. Oh, thanks. thank heavens for the mush God. The mush God has no particular credo, no tenets of faith, Nothing that would make it difficult for either the believer or the non-believer alike to lower their heads when he speaks. In fact, the mush god is not a jealous god at all, and he will gladly share the platform with any other gods that anyone might have. Call him the god of the rotary or the god of the optimists. This god is the protector of the buddy system. The mush god is also the lord of the secular ritual. The mush god is a serviceable god who will fit in anywhere. His laws are not chiseled on tablets of stone, but they're written on sand, which allows his laws to be open, open to amendment, to qualification, change, and erasure. His laws can easily blend in with the beliefs of anyone. Here is a God that will compromise with you. He will gladly relax with the rules. He will make allowances and declare all wars of any type to be holy wars. He's a God that is all too happy to look the other way. Here's a God who is a good friend to everyone. In fact, the mush God tells all his friends that they can do no wrong, that all activities are fine with him. And most people just love him for just that. And all are happy to follow him wherever he might leave them. The mush God. Unfortunately, more often than not, that's the God that's worshipped today. Ezekiel 22, you don't see that. Ezekiel 22, verse 25, 
Here we see prophets saying the conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing her prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean, the specific job of religious leader. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath, so I am profaned among them. Malachi 2 Verse 7 through 9 says, For the lips of the priest shall keep knowledge, and the people shall, should seek the law from his mouth, for he is, the he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. They're not the solution. They're the problem. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways but have shown partiality in the law. The exact opposite of what God wants. Because in the New Testament, we see what God wants. 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 2, we see what ministers are supposed to do. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince. Rebuke. There's something that doesn't happen very often. Exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's this day. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And the last thing that, and there's probably many, many more, that God holds against this religious leaders is that their own sins have curtailed their effectiveness in ministry. Their own sins have curtailed their effectiveness in ministry. Only 42% of American Christians say that Christian ministers have high or very high standards of honesty and ethics. 42%, more than half of people say ministers, ugh, they have got no ethics. How embarrassing is that? Only 37% of Americans trust their pastors. The profession of minister is only the eighth most trusted profession. Above bankers, that's good, but below funeral directors. It's a profession that's not respected. Many clerics don't even believe the Bible that they preach. A surprisingly high percentage of atheist clergy are coming out. Many become atheists actually in seminary where they're supposedly learning about God. Not only do the religious leaders fail to teach about sin, they live in sin. Whether adultery, homosexuality, transsexuality, drunkenness, greed, avarice, they are the examples of what not to be. But yet they're out there preaching it. As one observer noted, the church has mistakenly confused the church's role as the hospital for the sick by inviting patients who should be in care, uh, be cared for in the ICU to become its doctors. Some of these folks are the ill, the sick, they should be in the intensive care units. Instead, they're now the doctors. And God is outraged when people claim to be his spokesmen, his people who are protecting and teaching his truth when they're doing anything but, living and preaching totally contrary to his will. Hosea 6 verse 9 says, speaks, it speaks of bands of robbers lying in wait for men. So the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. Lewdness? 
Praise? Those words shouldn't ever be spoken together. In Jeremiah 10, verse 21, I'll just refer to this. For the shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper. All their flocks shall be scattered. Back to Jeremiah 23. I said I'd go back there. Very beginning of the chapter. Jeremiah 23, 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of God of Israel, against the shepherds who feed my people, you have scattered my flock. You've driven them away and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. God's going to put new shepherds in. That's where you're going to be part of. And they shall feel no more. They shall, nor shall they be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. For both prophet, verse 11, for both prophet and priests are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Sins abound with the religious leaders today. Isaiah 27, 28, verse 7 says, The priests and prophets have erred through wine, intoxicating drink, so they err in vision, they stumble in judgment. Lamentations 4, 13 and 14 says, The iniquities of her priests, wandering blind in the streets, so that God no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests or show favor to the elders. They're damning words towards people that should know better. Hosea 4, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being a priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your law, uh, law of your God. They eat up, verse 8, they eat up the sin of my people. They set up their heart of, on their iniquity and it shall be like people, like priests. So I'll punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. They're going to get rewarded for what they've done. They drove people away. They were shepherds that were out there, and they didn't care about their flock. Now, we've seen how the priests and the religious leaders failed in ancient Israel and in the time of Christ and the apostles, and we can understand the dual prophecies relating to the religious leaders of ancient Israel and the modern-day nations of Israel, but a few closing thoughts on how it affects you and me directly. Living at the end of this age, we've been put in a unique position. We're witnessing a nation completely turning its back on God. And we need to be able to look and see how the priests and the prophets, the religious leaders, the shepherds, how they failed and make sure that we don't go in that same direction. We need to see how the leaders of nominal Christianity have utter failed that mission, utterly failed in that mission. And we make, make sure that we don't fail that way nor that we become prey to any of those false teachers themselves. It may be helpful to reflect and ask ourselves, are we susceptible to changing beliefs or new doctrines? Sometimes they can be tempting. Do we have itching ears, wanting a new or more contemporary gospel? Do we worship our living creator God, or have we been influenced or conformed to the world around us that says those archaic beliefs don't fit in today's world. Are we being conformed or transformed? Do we, feel, do we ever feel squeamish 
or afraid to speak the truth on certain topics? Are we teaching our families about sin and the consequences of sin? And are we, as future priests, setting a high bar in our example so that others can follow rather than despise? Now, the Apostle Peter prophesied that scoffers will come in the last days. People who are willfully ignorant of what the Bible clearly records. He says that in 2 Peter 3. Because most people today, including many religious leaders, do not know or believe the Bible. They do not realize that Satan has blinded and deceived the whole world. Now, we were earlier introduced to Megan and Greta, Jean and Libby. We don't mock them. They, like the rest of this world, they have had a veil put over their eyes so they cannot see. And as such, they are the blind. And unfortunately, they're the blind leading the blind in this age. But that veil will someday be removed. And they will have the opportunity to know God and his way. As for us, our time, our time for understanding is now. And acting upon that understanding right now is vital. The Apostle Paul says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We have an awesome future as priests and kings for the king of kings.